Hi, this is Angel Wilson, and welcome to Spark Up. Thank you for joining me in my lovely little corner of the internet on this podcast. We're going to be talking a lot about autism, but not just autism itself. We're going to do a lot of dialogue talking to actual autistic people, getting their perspectives on autism and how it's looked at in society. We're also going to be talking to providers who provide services for autism and how they kind of see and approach autism. And we're also going to be talking to family members and get their viewpoint on what it's like to have a family member with autism. And we're going to have dialogues with all different kinds of people, including those. Some of those dialogues could get a little deep. We might talk about some some touchy subjects like racism and access to resources. But these are all topics that we know need to be talked about. So I hope you'll join me on this journey and I'll talk to you soon. Hello and welcome to Spark Up in my little section of the podcast world. This is Angel Wilson and today we are going to be talking about sensory, specifically all things dealing with sensory. So I know that most of us, when we hear the word sensory, we think immediately of the five basic senses. We think about sight, sound, taste, touch, and smell. But there are actually a couple of other senses in there that are really important when it comes to autism. So we're not only going to be talking about how autism displays and what it looks like for all these five, the main five senses. We're also going to be looking at two other senses, which are called vestibular and proprioception, which I know those are really big words. Those are very strange words. We're going to be using them a lot. I promise they'll make more sense to you by the time we get to the end. I will say that this is going to be a very term heavy episode. So I'll say it a couple of times throughout the episode and I'll say it, say it here for sure that you may need to pause. You may need to go back, look over it again, listen to it again. That's fine. I didn't learn all of this automatically either. I'll say that time and time again. These are terms and, and ideas that it takes a while to kind of learn and that's okay. That's why we're probably going to do multiple episodes in the future going into more detail about a lot of these different terms and situations. But for now, like I said, we're going to be looking at the 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 seven senses basically. We're going to be looking at again sight, sound, taste, touch, smell, vestibular, and proprioception. And we're also going to be looking at what we do in the field to help autistic individuals with processing and integrating these different things. And we're going to get into processing and integrating too. We're going to learn a lot about how we handle these different sensory situations, how they handle them, how they see it, and how we can help them facilitate and move through them so that they'll be able to engage with us better and communicate with us better. So let's get started. Thank you.
do we use our senses? There are two phrases that come up a lot in the autism world when it comes to sensory. There's sensory processing and sensory integration. So both have to do with how we take in sensory information around us and then how we utilize it. So I'm actually going to take you for a moment through the actual process of how we interpret um, sensory information and how important that is to understanding autism in general. So there's usually three steps to it. First is the actual input. That's when we actually get the sensory information. So for example, I will say, say you're walking down a sidewalk and you hear a fire truck coming down the street. The sensory input is more than likely going to be first, you're going to hear the fire truck coming. So you'll start hearing that alarm sound coming and it'll probably get louder and louder as it's coming closer. The next thing may happen is that you may see the lights flashing from the fire truck as it's getting closer. And then as it comes past, depending on what kind of surface you're walking on, you may actually even feel like the rumble or the shake of the fire truck as it's going by. So all of this, amongst other things, your brain is taking in right now. It's, it's going to take in all that information. Now it has to process it. It has to say, okay, what was all of that that we just experienced? So it's going to break down and say, oh, that, you know, that sound that's from a fire truck. Oh, it is, you know, you know, recognize the fire truck because it's red and it's white and it has some yellow. And, you know, judging by the speed, it's clearly going to some kind of emergency. Based on all that information that your brain just processed, it's going to then do an output. You're either going to maybe get curious and turn in the direction of the fire truck to see if you can see where it's going. You may turn to a person next to you and say, oh, I wonder, I wonder what's going on. Or you may choose to simply ignore it. And it's just an everyday sound that you're used to. So you may look for a second and then you'll go on about your day and keep walking. So that was a basic breakdown of how we kind of take in sensory information normally. But as we're going to see in a second, when it comes to autism, it's taken in a bit differently and it is perceived much differently than how we typically perceive it. an actual term or um, condition for this type of uh, abnormal processing. It's actually called sensory processing disorder. And though it's not yet seen as like an official disorder, it's used very much in the autism community to describe this aspect of autism that involves difficulty with processing, you know, input that's coming in from all the different senses. So a good way that I like to kind of like explain this in a way that kind of breaks it down a little bit easier is I use what I call the air filter analogy so that you kind of get an idea of this is how it typically acts, the sensory system, and this is how it acts under autism. So if you think of our 
sensory processing and how we interpret sensory input as a air filter. Imagine air filter, it usually has a bunch of really, really tiny holes and that's used to filter out, you know, impurities, allergens, dust, things like that. So with a typically developing brain, if you have, say, a flickering light in the corner during a class, so you're sitting in class and there's, of course, fluorescent lights and there's one in the corner that is flickering a bit. Your brain may input, get that sensory input coming in, but it'll come in and that filter will be able to say, hey, that's not really important information for us right now. We need to focus on the class. We're going to kind of discard that and put it as just background fodder. So you yourself don't really pay attention too much to the flickering light because it doesn't have to do with what the brain's trying to do at that moment. With someone who is on the autism spectrum or someone who has this sensory processing disorder, what's happening is that there are bigger holes in that air filter or there may not be an air filter at all. So what happens is that light in the corner that typically someone can just dismiss and put aside, the brain of an autistic person is getting that full force. So it doesn't come across as just a little flicker. It may come across as a full strobe and it's you know just this bright, bright flashing light in the corner of their eyes to the point that it's actually competing with, say, the teacher in the front of the class who is trying to explain or teach something. So if you have two things that are coming at the same intensity, your brain's going to have a harder time saying, oh, this thing is not as important. Instead, because of the holes in that air filter, everything is being seen as important. And so that's when you start getting what is commonly called a sensory overload. And that is one of the reasons why oftentimes, say, in a classroom, you may have a child that seems to completely kind of zone out or just is no longer engaged in any shape or form with the teacher because there may be something else in the classroom that has completely taken over their sensory world. I'm going to pause for just a moment here because I know that I'm throwing a lot of terminology <laughs> at you guys. And this is a, a subject that has a lot of, of different terms in order to understand it. If you need to go back, review over things, feel free to do so. 
it took a long time for me to even get a whole, you know, years basically to really understand these concepts when it comes to sensory. And I'm trying to fit all of that into to one short period. We will probably more than likely have other episodes later on down the line where we go into much more detail about these different areas because a lot of these different terms and and concepts that we're going to be talking about, we could really easily do an entire session of its own, an entire episode of its own on it. So for right now, again, I'm kind of giving you the 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 short and sweet of as much of the information as I can. So again, don't feel bad if at first this sounds like I'm talking almost in a foreign language. It's it's okay. It's it's a lot to take in. Um, that's why I'm going through bit by bit. Next uh, set of terms, high sensory and low sensory. There are a couple ways that this is talked about in the autistic world and the autism world. First, we have high sensory. We also like to call that sensory seeking. Those are kids, teens, and adults that need a lot of sensory input. They need a lot of it. So these are the ones who may go run and crash into things. They may love to give like really, really tight squeezes and hugs. They may, you know, put everything into their mouth because they want to explore everything. They may rock a lot. They may run around in circles. They may open and close things a lot. They are constantly seeking some kind of sensory input. So for them, using the air filter analogy, it could be that their air filter is actually has too many, like too much of a screen. So they have to do more in order to get that that impact, in order to actually feel, taste, smell, hear these different things. They have to do more of it. Then you have low sensory and sensory avoidant. These are the kids, teens, and adults who literally avoid most a lot of sensory input at all cost if the child or the teen or the adult does not like to wear clothing for example it could be because their skin is hypersensitive to that touch and so you know if you touch them and they curl away that could that's a sign of sensory avoidance if there are certain textures that they just do not tolerate as far as food as far as clothing on their body as far as things that they may bump into or interact with. That's also sensory avoidant. We're going to get a little bit more into that in a bit, but I wanted to introduce the the major terms, the idea of sensory seeking and sensory avoidant, that there's two areas. You can also sometimes have those who kind of fall in the middle, who have some things that they seek out and some things that they avoid. And a lot of us, even us neurotypical, typical folks have things like this too. There are certain sensations that we can't stand. Most of us, for example, absolutely can't stand nails on a chalkboard. That's a sensory, sensory input piece that all of us, it just, it makes, you know, it makes your, your toes curl. You're like, ugh, no. Others of us have very distinct things. For example, I'll use myself. I absolutely hate cottage cheese. I do not like the smell of it. I do not like the texture of it. It I don't understand how it can be creamy and then you bite you you bite into it and there's this chalky kind of sensation that comes up. I don't like the chalky sensation in general, but I do I can't I can't do it. I just, I absolutely can't do it. That's an example of something where I have a sensory avoidant thing where I don't like those particular textures or I don't like those textures combined together. 
Another thing um, I keep offering myself as an example, because I just have so many <laughs> examples, but um, I have this thing where I don't like most of the time. I don't like my foods touching on a plate. Uh, if the juice, for example, from something goes into something else, I suddenly can't eat it. I, I don't want to eat it. One of my biggest pet peeves is if there is, say, chicken. And I'll say collard greens or something that can have juice with it. And the collard green juice rolls into the chicken and makes it makes it moist. I can't eat it now. I I hate it. I absolutely hate it. So that's a really good example, I think, of sensory avoidance of certain things and textures and experiences that I absolutely cannot stand. Uh, you probably have your own different uh sensory seeking or sensory avoiding things you just haven't realized that this is a thing but i bet as i brought some of those up you probably thought oh yeah there, there's this one thing that i absolutely can't stand because I, I do not like the texture or i do not like the smell of it um i can think of a million more for myself but like i said i'm sure you also have things that you either avoid because sensory wise you don't like them or you seek out because sensory wise you absolutely love them So what do each of these sensory input experiences look like when it comes to autism or how may you see it? What may it look like to you when you're observing or interacting with um, an autistic person? So I'm going to go down and give a couple of examples in each of the different sensory categories. So first, visually. A lot of times I've worked, of course, mostly with children. A lot of times you'll see the children do hand movements in front of their eyes. They may take their hands and wave them across their eyes, either really slowly or really quickly. They will um, stare at lights. Sometimes they'll stare at reflective surfaces. I remember one child had um, he was fascinated with the CDs and DVDs in the um in the classroom and so he would pick up the you know a cd or a dvd and he would just turn it in his hand and just stare and i remember for a while i couldn't figure out why he was doing that until i decided to pick up a cd and do it with him and i realized what he was doing was he was looking at the rainbow that reflects off of the the light on the back of the cd i said oh he's fascinated with the rainbow colors and that was one way that I kind of bridged communication with him was that I was able to actually go and see and experience this sensory input the way he was. And that became a gateway to communicating with him. Next is audio or sound. I think most of us understand or are familiar with a child having a complete meltdown because there was a loud sound that happened, say the aforementioned fire truck or a thunderclap, something that was unexpected that comes in really loud. For autistic individuals, again, because of that air filter analogy, 
they may hear it much stronger than we do, and it may overwhelm them more than it overwhelms us. So fire truck to us, yes, it's annoying, but we're kind of used to it. And so we just, we just accept it as up. That's part of the noise, the background of being in a city or being, you know, in an area that has a fire station. For someone on the spectrum, that fire truck, the sounds and the lights may completely overwhelm at that moment. And that's all they see and hear. And that can be a lot for someone. Another um, sound related, we also call them stims, things that the behaviors that autistic people may do to either calm or enhance sensory stuff. Talking or humming very loudly. If they suddenly start talking or singing very loudly or humming, humming could also be part of touch in the sense that they like the way that it feels when they hum, how it feels in their throat. But it may also be a attempt to either drown out what's going on around them or because they just like the sound of their voice. That's possible as well. Smell. This uh, this one and taste actually go hand in hand a lot. So I'll kind of put both smell and taste together. Not really liking strong smelling foods or even seeking out strong smelling foods. They may some kids may have a preference for foods that smell very strongly. Others want to avoid it at all cost. And sometimes they can get very particular about this. If, say, they always eat spaghetti. But on this particular day that, you know, the parent or the caregiver made spaghetti, they added an extra ingredient or an extra herb or an extra spice that they usually don't. If the child gets the plate put in front of them and they can smell that spice, like they put a little bit more oregano in than they usually do, the child may completely refuse that food. Even though they've eaten it every time before, the, the smell and taste balance was off and they'll completely reject the food. Same thing with taste. If it normally tastes a certain way and it was off by even a bit and they're suddenly using the oregano again, there's suddenly more of a taste of oregano than before, the child may completely avoid and refuse to eat the food. A lot of times they will also have certain food types that they prefer. So they may prefer crunchy foods to softer foods. I've noticed in particular, and I don't think there's been any concrete research on this yet, but myself and a lot of my colleagues have noticed that a lot of folks on the spectrum tend to go toward what I call the the bland diet, meaning that they'll all of the foods will be a similar color. They're all going to be on that orange, not even orange, but like yellow, brownish spectrum. So you're going to see like chicken nuggets, basically anything breaded, chicken nuggets, french fries, bread, um, sometimes mashed potatoes, depending on their preference for texture. But a lot of these brown foods that are pretty predictable and pretty much taste the same across the board. And that's because they're safe. They know French fries usually always taste like French fries. If you go to, although some places, of course, it's up to debate on who has better French fries, of course, but they're going to pretty much be the same across the board. They know it's going to be a stick that's been fried and has potato in the middle. So they know what to expect. Same thing with bread. For the most part, they know what to expect. Chicken nuggets, they pretty much know what to expect. So a lot of times the kids will just stick with those foods because they're safe to them and they know what to expect sensory-wise. They're not going to get a surprising taste. They're not going to get a surprising smell associated with it. 
And if you change that in any shape or form, if the texture is changed, even if, use an example, chicken nuggets, even if you microwave them, for example, instead of cooking them in a skillet, the child's going to notice the difference and they may refuse the chicken nuggets because they're like, oh, nope, they're mushier than they normally are. I don't want to eat it. This also kind of ties in with this actually leads us right into the the area of touch avoiding certain textures so like with the chicken nuggets if it feels mushier than normal they may not eat it they may not want to have anything to do with it they also may um, avoid like i said earlier certain clothing types so tags on the back of the shirts are a big one i've heard lots of parents and i've heard autistic people themselves say that they hate the tags on the on the backs of t-shirts and oftentimes they'll cut them off they prefer shirts that don't have tags, but if they have them, they'll often cut them off because what feels like a mild inconvenience to us may feel like sandpaper brushing against their backs to them. And they also may seek out a lot of strong input, like um, hugs. These are the kids that when they see you, they may come crashing into you and almost knock you over and just super, super squeeze you. They're happy to see you, yes, but they're also looking for that, that sensory input. These are the kids also who may um, fall and, and hurt themselves and not really feel it as much. A lot of times uh, parents and teachers will say it seems like the child doesn't feel pain. And it's because they it takes more for them to pick up on that sensory feeling. So, yes, something that may normally cause one child to cry, it may not even phase a child who has this, you know, sensory seeking behavior. They, it may take, I hate to say it may take more for them to even notice the pain, but that's true. And that also makes them a lot more of a daredevil kind of child. They're going to do more because they don't feel the pain as much and they don't have that warning of, oh, this is going to be painful. I probably shouldn't jump off of this bookshelf. Nope. They, they don't feel the pain as quickly or as easily as we do. So that doesn't even cross their mind. Vestibular, which again, like I said earlier, this has to do with the movement part. One of the key elements with vestibular is core control. So what do I mean by core? When you're doing, if you do ever do exercise, if you do like a plank where you have to kind of hold yourself up for like 30 seconds to a minute and your stomach and your abs are burning, that is all your core. This is a critical part that's needed in order to be able to learn how to sit up straight and support yourself, walk, stand, crawl. A lot of kids on the spectrum end up with low core strength here, and that leads to a difficulty with holding themselves up, difficulty with balance. So your kiddos who seem to, you know, just kind of wobble about, or if you sit them down in a position, they just kind of stay there. They can't move from it. They're literally just, they're just stuck there in that position because they don't have enough of the vestibular aspect or the core strength to be able to move themselves into a new position. And then proprioception, these are our super, uh, our super quote unquote clumsy kids, the ones that seem to trip on air, because again, this is, has to do with knowing where your body is in space. So they may misjudge where their feet are on steps. They may misjudge how far the wall is from them. They may not be able to figure out, okay, my hand is out here and I can, you know, uh, the thing I need to grab is right here. So they may have a hard time reaching out and grabbing 
certain things that are a distance away from them. So both vestibular and proprioception come out as like, these are the clumsy kids. Um, they also, on the flip side, it may come out as a child who is just seems to be superhuman as far as their movements go. They are, they might've started walking really quickly. It feels like they skipped, you know, almost skipped crawling and went straight to walking and running. They're all over the place. They're climbing all over the place. They can do, you know, flips and things. And you're like, wow, they're, they're all over the place as far as, as movement goes. That could be because it's, it's, it's super high for them. That's also pretty common in autism. In case you haven't noticed, there's a theme of extremes when it comes to autism. You may have a, a child that has a, a lot of the, the, what we call gross motor, which is that running, jumping, you know, big movement kind of stuff. They can do that really well, but they can't communicate, can't speak, um, can't really engage with other people. But that motor skill thing is that that's through the roof. You may have the opposite where they're, they're, they're better at communicating than most, but their motor skills are, are way down. A lot of times, though, the motor skills are usually pretty high. That's actually a, a clear sign to us as specialists or professionals in this world that there may be autism present. If we see a, a, a score, a bunch of scores in the different categories of development, and we see a really, really high motor score, like this child's running, walking, jumping way ahead of schedule, but then everything else is low. That's actually a, a red flag to us to kind of look and see, okay, we, this may be a child who's on the spectrum. Let's at least explore it a little bit and see what we see. So who are some of the people who work with these individuals on helping to understand and, 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 and process and, and calm some of these sensory behaviors down and what are some of the techniques that they use? So the first one that is most commonly associated with dealing with sensory processing and integration is an occupational therapist also known as an OT. So if you hear the, the letters OT bounced around with regards to your child or recommendations, they're talking about occupational therapy. Now, some of you may be thinking, wait, occupational therapists, I know they usually work with adults who have been say injured on the job and need help getting their fine motor skills together. And you are correct. That is one of the major ways that occupational therapists uh, work. They usually work on fine motor skills related to regaining strength. Like say if someone broke their hand or broke their arm, they may go to an occupational therapist to help them learn how to strengthen the muscles in their hand and their arm and regain the ability to use it properly. They are also though, 
used in the autism world with regards to sensory integration. So not all, but quite a few occupational therapists also get trained on sensory integration. And I think it's literally called SIT, Sensory Integration Training, SIT. They literally get trained in this, especially the ones who work with younger clients. So the ones who work with our zero to three, our, our, our young children, middle childhood, a lot of those oftentimes will have some, if not a lot of experience in sensory. So yes, they do. Occupational therapists do work on skills and they do that with our young ones too. They help with learning how to hold a spoon or hold a cup, stack blocks, those fine motor skill things dealing with the hands, but they can also work on sensory processing. And they can be used, of course, like we said, throughout the lifespan. It's not just for adults. It's not just for the younger kids. One of the things that I absolutely love that occupational therapists will often, I guess you could say, quote unquote, prescribe for an autistic child is what we call a sensory diet. And I know you're thinking, oh, is that going to be a list of like the different foods? Not exactly. A sensory diet is literally that it's a diet, but it's looking at all the different types of sensory input that this child may need in order to be able to function. Oftentimes, if a child has too much sensory input coming in, like I said earlier, they're going to have a very difficult time with focusing, paying attention, and learning some of these other skills they need to learn, such as social interaction and communication. So if you have a sensory diet, you have a list of things that they can do, the caregiver can do, the therapist can do, to help regulate the child. And I'm sure a lot of you who have worked in, in, in education and in daycare and in preschool and early education long enough now, you've probably heard that whole idea of regulation quite a bit now. It's been talked about a lot more in the last several years. I'm really glad to see this being talked about more because it's a very important component when it comes to autism to helping kids be able to settle themselves enough to focus and learn. So for example, there may be certain tools or devices that the occupational therapist may recommend to be brought in to help with the child. Uh, one of my, one of the most common known ones would be a sensory blanket or a sensory vest. So I've seen some kids actually wear the vest and this is one of the things that helps with that proprioception part, knowing where they are in space because they're a bit heavier, they feel more grounded. They feel more, okay, my feet are on the ground. I am standing here. This is where I am in space. Again, something that we typically in the neurotypical world take for granted. We just know, okay, I'm standing here. I can feel my feet on the ground. For a lot of kids on the spectrum, that may not be as easy for them to, to grasp. So something like a blanket or something kind of heavy that can help ground them and help them see, okay, I am sitting here. My body is here that can actually help calm them a lot. There are certain swings that they may um, offer that can help with, again, that vestibular and proprioception. And I really love the brush pro protocol. So there's a very particular type of brush that can be used. You can actually get it on Amazon. It's actually pretty inexpensive. And for some kids, if you actually brush their hands or their feet or their arms with this brush, it completely calms them down. Like you literally see their entire body just start to slump down and they're just like, oh, this is nice. I've literally had kids request this once they kind of got had it 
you know, had the experience for the first time. I remember one child in particular, I would kind of just ask, oh, do you do you need some brushing? And he would just ever so slowly hold, get this little smile on his face and hold his foot up to me like, yes, please brush my foot. <laughs> and as I'm brushing his feet, you can just see him just, ah, just relax. And then he'll be calm for a good, I'll say 40 minutes to an hour after that. So it really helps, these kind of things really help calm the child down and center them so that they can focus. They want to be able to focus. They want to be able to engage with peers, you know, for the most part. They want to be able to communicate and get needs met. And by addressing all of these sensory needs through, say, an occupational therapist, through a sensory diet, through these different kinds of tools, they can get those sensory needs met so that they can focus better. Likewise, in the early intervention world, you have what I used to do, which is the developmental specialist. That is the person that kind of, we're kind of a jack of all trades. We kind of look at a little bit of everything dealing with development. So yes, we look at sensory, but we also look at communication. We look at um, engagement. We look at their gross and fine motor skills. We look at a bit of everything. Most of us work in conjunction with a zero to three age program. This kind of program is in most, if not all the states. It has a different name in different states. I think, for example, in California, I think it's it's literally called zero to three. Here, specifically in Palm Beach County, it is early steps. So if you've heard of early steps that I was in that world previously, I worked as what is known as an ITDS or an infant toddler developmental specialist. So in early steps, we're kind of the ones who are usually first given, we're the first service that's usually offered. And we're kind of the ones who are going to be the point person to get all the other services. So we'll be the ones that kind of work with the child and say, oh, you know what, I think this child will benefit from an occupational therapist. Because even though I know quite a bit about sensory, that's that's not my area of complete area of expertise. That's an occupational therapist. And trust me, we're going to have an occupational therapist on at some point in time, if not multiple times, because they are amazing resources and sources of information. And I love to talk to them and pick their brains and get ideas for uh, sensory stuff for my kiddos. So in early intervention, developmental specialists can also work on quite a few sensory things, but we love to collaborate with occupational therapists to create a program that can be done across the board at home, in daycare, in each of the sessions that we're doing so that this child is getting exactly what they need sensory-wise from all of the adults that are working to provide services. So I'm going to give an example of basically everything that we just covered up until this point and put it into a real life situation, Um, a hypothetical situation, but a a real life situation. So there's a client that comes to me that is a young adult that has a lot of other kind of um, issues and concerns going on. And while talking about their stress and the things that really bother them, they bring up their job working in a restaurant setting. They work as a waitress, basically. And they talk about how they get overwhelmed and they feel like there's something wrong with them because they can't seem to quite get it together, so to speak. 
So, of course, we kind of sit down and expand on that a bit, and they give me more details, and this is when my little thinking cap comes on because they start saying, oh, well, I noticed that when the restaurant is really, really busy, I get really, you know, really flustered super easily to the point where I go into the back and I just curl up in a ball and start crying sometimes because it's I just I don't know why it confuses me. But it's just too much at that moment. And so I said, well, tell me more about like the the too much. And then she starts going into what she means by too much. And I'm hearing a lot of sensory stuff. I'm hearing uh, the lights suddenly getting to her, the smells, all the smells of food getting to her, the people and all of their talking getting to her. And how, especially during, again, these busy moments like the lunch rush or dinner, she has a very hard time. But if she's put in an area that's less intrusive, if she's put, say, in the back where she's helping to, say, prep food, or if she's just kind of going around and just kind of, you know, cleaning up behind and making sure everything looks clean and is neat, she has much lower rates of just breaking down. And so I said, did you ever think that maybe it could be sensory related? And she said, nope, never, never crossed my mind at all. And so what we did was we started examining and, and kind of creating her, in a way, like her sensory diet. We started looking at what is it that helps calm her down? What is it that helps kind of helps her to kind of process? What are the things that really rile her up or get her sensory, you know, sensory overload, basically. And once we established the the nice sensory things and the not so nice sensory things, we started planning, okay, what can we do to address those not so nice sensory things? Ultimately, what she decided to do was she decided to leave the restaurant industry completely and ended up going and getting a job doing kind of yoga uh, um, exercises and in teaching and leading and helping to lead yoga classes. And she came back and said, this is a million times better. Oh, this is like bliss to me. I don't know why I didn't think to kind of do something more calm like this before. And again, it was just the fact that she didn't know her own sensory setup and profile. She didn't know what it was that really sets her off sensory wise and really doesn't. And this was also someone who had yet been diagnosed with autism. Since then, she's actually gone through the process and come to find out, yes, she is in fact autistic. And she came back and was and just said, wow, this this literally explains everything that I've gone to through my entire life. And now the experiences that I was having with the stress and and going into public places and dealing with the restaurant business, she's all of that suddenly is explained. I I understand it now. And because of the things that we talked about and because we kind of laid out a plan for her as far as her sensory needs go, she was able to find a way to still function, still have a job that she loves to do, but not get overwhelmed by that job. So I love that example because it's an adult example of, of autism and an adult example of how sensory can impact someone because a lot of times we speak of kids with this category but it you know autistic kids grow into autistic teenagers and autistic adults 
And the truth is they still have sensory concerns and sensory needs that they have. And those also have to be addressed. And if they're not addressed and calmed, and if they don't learn how to integrate and process and, and, and hold those, then you can't have situations like this happen where they have a hard time interacting or dealing with certain environments. You know, they have to learn either on their own or through a support system. Okay. I know that when I go into Walmart, I'm going to need my headphones on because the noises in there are too much. I know that I can't, you know, as, as, as sad as it sounds, I know, for example, that I may not be able to go to a concert because there's too much going on. Or if I do go to a concert, I'm going to need a lot of time afterwards to decompress. I'm actually like that. I, I love going to shows and concerts, but I know after I come back from it, no one's going to hear from me for about two days because I need to literally decompress because that's a lot of sensory input that just, that you just got hit with. And I think that applies to both autistic people or people with sensory needs and neurotypical people who don't necessarily have those sensory needs. We get overwhelmed too. And it's important for us to recognize and learn when we're at our limit and when it's time to kind of step back and take a break, whatever that looks like for ourselves, and take that time to decompress. So next up, I'm going to be going over some different tips that you can use as parents, as caregivers, as possibly autistic people yourselves to help with dealing with those different types of sensory input. Before I jump into the quick tips that I have for you guys when it comes to sensory, I want to also remind you that I have trainings that I do that cover all of these different categories in my business spark. These trainings can be catered for parents and caregivers, daycare staff, teachers, companies and organizations. I can cater them basically to whatever is needed, but I have trainings on sensory on um, using play to develop those sensory needs and address those needs and address uh, developmental milestones, how to actually uncover, okay, what are the actual hidden reasons for these different behaviors? Is it something sensory? And if so, how can we address it? I have, you know, the thing, there's an app for that. There's a training for that. So um, at the end, I'll give my contact information if you're interested in any of those. But I do have trainings for a lot of these things that I'm about to go over. So different tips that I want to impart upon you so that you can better understand your, your children, family members, other autistic individuals out there. First, let your child engage in tactile play. So that's that sometimes can mean getting a little dirty. I know, I'm sorry, but this is one of the best ways that kids learn is that tactile play. That's things like Play-Doh, uh, shaving cream or, or whipped cream, kinetic sand, uh, stretchy toys, squeeze toys, anything that really makes them get in and use their hands. And if it in combines other senses at the same time, even better. I know sometimes with some kids, that also means it could be a 
eating hazards. So you have to watch them at times. And I'll bring that up over and over again. Be sure to kind of watch and, and maintain safety regardless of what you're doing in all of these tips. If you have a child that tends to put a lot of things in their mouth, you're going to have to watch them while they're engaging in this kind of play. Second, give them, give them or create noisemakers. I'll add that you can tolerate because I know sometimes parents and caregivers and daycare staff will get, say, like musical instruments for the child. And then that's all you hear 24-7 for the next two weeks in a row. But these are actually really good for uh, audio stimulation. Some of them can be good for uh, tactile and touch. There are like, I think, the little sandpaper uh, blocks that you can like rub together and make the sandpaper sound. A lot of kids love those. But I, again, I understand that there are some instruments and sounds like drums. Parents always complain to me. It's like, oh, their relative got them a drum set for their birthday. And now that's all that I hear. <laughs> so again, within your realm of tolerance, I know not everyone can tolerate instruments playing 24-7, but they're excellent as far as helping with the audio aspect of, of sensory. Third, get them moving. Get them 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 out and about going on on jungle gyms and playing because that helps also kind of get a lot of that energy out that helps work that vestibular and proprioceptive sensory part that helps with the with the tactile touch sensory part that that hits so many sensory needs so i say if you can get them out get them out that can include that can be as simple as going to the park and letting them climb and swing that could be as, as simple as also creating a little mini obstacle course in your home. I've done that in session at during in-home sessions. We've actually set up and used like couch pillows and rearranged and moved around chairs and things. It was very simple, but the kids absolutely loved it because they got to crawl on things and crawl under things and, and, and push things aside. And so again, they get to take out and get a lot of that sensory energy out. Another tool that I use a lot of times is a yoga ball. Might get one of those giant yoga balls, especially with kids who need help strengthening that core, holding them and bouncing them on that ball or standing them again, hold them, make sure safety first, always safety first, holding them as they're standing and bouncing on the ball. That also is a huge help with building the, the, the balance aspect of it and bouncing. Uh, some parents have gone as far as to get mini trampolines uh, inside the house or even gotten huge full-blown trampolines in the backyard. And that becomes the child or teen's favorite activity. Going to, um, you know, bounce places with bounce houses or trampoline parks. There's a few of them, I think, here in Palm Beach County. I know definitely there's one further north, I believe, called Rock the Spectrum. That's it's just that one is specifically built for autistic kids. It's actually a a um it's a franchise. I I saw them um over in California when I lived over there. So I know that one for sure caters to kids who are on the autism spectrum and even offer classes. You know, you can do food play or you can do actual classes that deal with that get that that occupational therapy side kind of in. So some kind of movement like that that allows them to get that out. Next, have a detective mindset. This is a critical part of one of my trainings. I'm not going to go too much into it here, but it's a crucial part of one of the trainings where oftentimes we need to step back and really examine a situation to see 
what sensory input may have led to a behavior. So for example, using that fire truck example, that's an easy one to kind of identify like, oh, there was a huge fire truck that came by and it was really loud. And that's what caused the child to start crying and, and go into a, a meltdown. There may be other things that happen, though, that are sensory related that you may not be able to easily catch because it would be something that, com you know, missed you completely. It could be that the child's sock in their shoe got wet. You might not be able to easily see that, but that one little bit of sensory input could throw them off for the entire day. Because let's face it, even as a neurotypical person, wet socks feel horrible. <laughs> I think we can all agree that wet socks are just one of the worst sensations ever. So imagine if you're hypersensitive to stuff like that. It could feel 10 times worse. And yes, something that feels as bad as wet socks and then multiply that, that may very well just knock out your entire day. Your whole day may be miserable if you have to walk around like that. So be sure to kind of have this detective mindset and examine and see what could have happened even hours earlier that could be leading to this behavior or this crankiness. It may not be the child just being difficult. It could be that something happened sensory-wise that threw the child off their entire day. The, you know, they usually have oatmeal for breakfast and raisins were put in the oatmeal and the child's not used to raisins in the oatmeal. Something as simple and basic as that could throw the child off for the entire day because their, their planned idea of what was expected to happen didn't happen. Next, learning your child's sensory profile. So much like what I did with the adult in the example earlier, we sat down and figured out their profile. I even encourage caregivers, families, daycare workers, teachers to actually write out an actual profile. I had a parent who actually did this when their child was going to preschool for the first time. She wrote out a sensory profile and explained, this is my child. These are the sensory things that they love to do. These are the things that they absolutely cannot stand, can't tolerate, so that the teachers knew, okay, this kind of thing, the child's not going to go for. Um, the child does not like ketchup on their chicken nuggets. Keep this, the ketchup and the chicken nuggets completely separate. Don't have them touching or the child's not going to eat at all. Those kind of little things can actually really go a long way to actually help the caregivers or the teachers and, and parents themselves, you guys, on how to best inter interact with and engage with the child. It can go a long way just having that little sensory profile. When it comes to eating and introducing new foods, this is a very specific tip. Start with just the bare minimum. A lot of times we want to try to jump in and just, I want them to, I'll say strawberries, for example. I want the child to eat strawberries. It may start with you just taking a little piece of strawberry and sitting it on the plate and not doing anything else. You don't mention it. You don't bring it to their attention. You just put a little bit on the plate and you do that every night at dinner and it may take a while. You may do that for a good 15 to 16 days. And then finally, on day, say like 17 or something, the child will touch the food. And at that point, you're just like, oh, you found the strawberry. Yeah, that's a strawberry. And that may be as far as it goes for a little while. The child may just touch it for a little bit. But as you keep introducing the food, that lowers the child's sensitivity to it. That raises the child's curiosity about it. 
And again, even if it takes a long time, when it comes to introducing new foods, consistency is key. You have to be willing to introduce that food for a long period of time because the child has to get accustomed to it. And it may take a while to get to that point of the child touching. It may take a while to get to that point of the child picking up the food and, and rubbing it in their hands. It may take a while for the child to pick up the food, rub it in their hands and bring it to their lips. This is all a process for them. This is something that they have to kind of build themselves up towards. So don't push them. Just introduce the food and just keep introducing it. It's a very nice way that's not overly evasive. It's not putting pressure on the child. You don't want meal time to be associated with this high pressure situation of, oh no, they're going to introduce something and try to force me to eat it and keep, and you know, and just talk about it the whole time that we're sitting at the table. You want meal time to be an enjoyable time. It's supposed to be a time where everyone's kind of sitting and enjoying each other's company and eating. So keep it that way. Make sure it stays a low pressure situation and just introduce the food very, very slowly. And finally, try out different sensory toys. There are plenty of places that you can go and find toys like this. Uh, Target has a section in their toy department that has nothing but all these different kinds of sensory balls, squeeze balls, pop tubes that like pull out and make the really crazy noise as you pull them out. Walmart has a whole section of uh, sensory toys. They're usually sitting out on like, you know how you have the aisles of toys and you have like the displays on the end of the aisles. Most of the times that I've seen them in Target or Walmart, they're in those in displays. Amazon, of course, has a ton of different types of sensory toys and even sensory boxes. By the way, also shameless plug, Spark is also starting to test out offering Spark boxes where we actually will curate a box of sensory toys based on your child's sensory profile. We'll actually create a sensory profile and build a whole box of toys and books and little surprises based on that child's sensory profile. But like I said, you can also get a lot of these individual things at uh, places like Target, Walmart, Amazon. That was a really info heavy session. And I, I know that if you, again, like I said earlier, if you need to go back and listen to it again to really get some of those terms down, that is fine. I completely understand. Again, I didn't get all this on the first go of being introduced to it either. It's a lot, but it is super, super helpful in understanding autism and the autistic world and how they see the world. It's such a huge part, an important part of that understanding. And I'm going to say this one statement. And if you digest nothing else that I said in this entire, you know, um, episode, if the whole episode was just like, you know, gobbledygook and you didn't really understand it, this one sentence, I, I hope you take away. If you take nothing else away, take this away. Sensory determines social engagement and communication. I'm going to say it again. Sensory determines social engagement and communication. If that person's sensory needs are not being met, if they have sensory extremes that are going on at that moment, you're going to have a very hard time getting any kind of social engagement and you're going to have a very hard time getting any kind of communication. So a lot of the times, if we address those sensory needs, if we're able to, to think up a plan and, and, and execute a plan and have a, a, a diet for them, have tools for them, it's going to be a lot easier to 
teach, to teach in general, and also get engagement and get communication. So again, if you take nothing away, nothing else from what I've said today in this entire episode, take that away. That sensory is a huge part and plays a vital role in social engagement and communication. You have to get the sensory down and handled and taken care of before you can even think of moving into handling and addressing social engagement and communication. So that is Sensory 101. I hope everyone learned a lot. I know that was, again, a lot of information. The upcoming episode is going to be a little bit different. I'm going to have a guest with me who is actually considers themselves to be neurodivergent, meaning that they do not have a typical developing brain. They do not have, to my knowledge, they do not have autism, but they have another neurotypical, neuro, atypical disorder that has a lot of similarities to autism. And they're going to come in and talk to us about uh, some of the work that they do, what their experiences were like growing up, having communication issues and engagement issues, and what kind of advice they'll give to parents, caregivers, teachers who have to work with a neurodivergent or non-typical child. As always, if you want to get in contact with me, me and my business have a website. It is www.sparkguidance.com. That's S-P-A-R-C-G-U-I-D-A-N-C-E.com. I am also on Instagram at at sparkguidance, same spelling. And you can also email me at angelw at sparkguidance.com. I hope you guys learned something. Take care. I'll see you next time. Be blessed. Don't be stressed. Bye.